0: I think, like many kids, I went through a phase of life where I was interested in magic and magic tricks. And one year, I was maybe 11 or 12, I got a magic hat for Christmas. It was this hard plastic thing produced by Ronco, I think. And there were all these things where there was a little magic wand with it. You could do tricks like make a card disappear inside the hat. There was a, a little cloth with a little bunny, and you'd put that one in there, and then you'd pull out this giant one with a giant bunny on it. There was one where you could pour water into the hat and then do the trick where you put it on your head and the water isn't there. It was this great thing, but I learned a little bit about magic. And one of the things about magic, one of the keys to magic is misdirection. right? You get people focused on one thing and there's all this stuff and you're paying attention to all the lights and the flash and the glitter and something else is going on over here. And that's kind of what happens in this story here, I think. Not that... God is doing magic, not that Mark is trying to misdirect us. But what happens in this story, I think, is that sometimes we get focused on the dazzle and the flash going on over here that we miss the important thing that's happening over here. So we're in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And just prior to this, as Jan alluded to in the reading, there's been this scene where Peter and Jesus and the other disciples are having a conversation. And Jesus says to the disciples, well, who are people saying I am? He wants to get a sense of what people are talking about. And the disciples say, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say you're a prophet. And so there's all these ideas about who Jesus is. Different rumors, different theories. And then Jesus says, well, what what about you? And Peter says, well, you're the Messiah. You're God's anointed. You're the king. And And then Jesus, interestingly, like he does many times in the Gospel of Mark, tells them not to say anything. Then he begins to teach them immediately following this declaration where Jesus is, where Peter just said, Jesus, you're the king, you're the Messiah. Jesus says, yep. And the Messiah is going to suffer and going to die and on the third day be raised again. And then Peter says, whoa, whoa, whoa. He says, no, no, Jesus, that's not the way it works. And Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, Well, get behind me, Satan. And so there's this thing where Peter goes from the head of the class to the back of the class in just a few seconds where he's got it all right until he's all wrong. And Jesus explains, you're thinking the way of humans. You're thinking that glory and power can't come through suffering. But Jesus says, no, you have to think in God's way, in God's God's plan, in God's way of thinking that glory, salvation, salvation, come through death and through giving up and then Jesus goes on and says that's what it looks like to be a disciple and so then we pick up this story and it says six days later so Jesus wants to tie this story back to what's going on this is Jesus took Peter James and John with him and led them up a high mountainside so Jesus takes three of his followers and he would do this sometimes where he would take a few of his disciples he had these 12 that followed him along and sometimes he would take three of them and it was Usually Peter, James, and John, he would take them apart separately, and sometimes it was just Peter. And he takes them up on a mountainside, and they were all alone. This is there, he was transfigured before them. He's not transformed. In other words, Jesus doesn't become something different, but his appearance changes. It's almost as if who he truly is begins to shine through. The ancient spiritual writers used to talk about thin places, And the idea was that there were places where heaven and earth were a little more open. Maybe you've experienced a time when you've maybe been a time of prayer, a time of singing. Maybe it's been a time when you've been walking out and God feels just a little bit closer. And we know the reality that God's not ontologically any closer now, but there's a sense where that veil, the thing that hides us from seeing God fully becomes a little thinner, a little easier to see through. And that's the sense of what happens here, where Jesus is transfigured. And it says his clothes become dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world can bleach them. And so there's this change, a sense of transformation. And then there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And at this point in the story, I always have all kinds of questions. Like, what were they talking about? And more importantly, how did they know it was Elijah and Moses? I mean, that's always one of those things. i mean, thinking, did Peter and James and John recognize, and say, oh, there's Elijah and Moses? There, weren't, there wasn't Wikipedia. There weren't pictures of them. I mean, were they wearing name tags? Did they have some way of saying, I mean, like, did they introduce themselves? We don't really know what's going on, but there's this sense. Here's Elijah and Moses, and scholars kind of wonder, well, what's the significance? And most likely, what most believe is Elijah and Moses are represent, representatives. Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. So there's a sense where Jesus is having this conversation and it's a tie-in to all that's gone before, what we refer to as the Old Testament, which was often broken down into the law and the prophets. So Elijah and Moses represent those. Elijah and Moses were also two men who had significant encounters with God on a mountain. Moses had gone to a mountain and met God at Mount Sinai. Elijah had gone up and had this contest with the prophets of Baal. And so here are these things, and they're having this conversation. And then Peter jumps in. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters or three tents, three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This is He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. So Peter experiences what most people experience as recorded in the Bible. When, when God shows up, when they see this vision of God, there's fear. There's this wondering what to do. And, like we do sometimes, when we get a little bit afraid, when we're unsure what to do, some of us, we just start talking, right? We're not sure. It's like, I don't know what's going on, so I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing, so I'm just going to start doing something. I'm going to start saying something because this is really uncomfortable and I don't like what's happening. And that's kind of what happens to Peter right here. He doesn't, it says, Mark says he doesn't know what to do. So he's like, Okay, I'm going to do something. And so he suggests building some tents, some boots. And most likely what was going on, there was a festival. The ancient Jews called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Boots. And it was a big harvest festival. And they would build these temporary boots. But that festival began to be associated later with the end of the time, with the Messianic age, with with the age to come. And so maybe Peter's thinking, oh, this is a sign. The end is coming, so we're going to set up the boots. Maybe he was just building the tents because he wanted to stay there a little bit longer. You don't pitch a tent when you're getting ready to move on. You pitch a tent when? When you're ready to stop for a little while, when you're ready to settle in. And so maybe Peter just wanted to be there a little longer. And so he says, okay, well, we're going to build a tent. One for you, one for you, one for you. He says, then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. We're not told whose voice, but it's clear from the way, it's this is God, the Father speaking. He said, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And it says they go down the mountain and they're having this conversation about the resurrection and most likely about the resurrection at the end of time and what's going on and how that's going to work. And they go down the mountain and we skipped over this passage where Jesus goes down and there's a healing. There's a young boy who's been possessed by a spirit and and there's this healing that goes on and then Jesus once again picks up a teaching on discipleship. And This is kind of how these work oftentimes. So there's this appearance of Jesus, then there's these questions and Jesus makes another prediction. Now the second time, Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. This is but they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. So once again, we get this picture. Jesus tells them what's going to happen. They don't understand what's going on. And then he teaches them about discipleship, and he talks to them about humility, and what it looks like to be a child, and to accept the child, the kind of, these, kind of lowest of the things is what it means, and to be a servant. But I want us to think about primarily what happened in that story, the story where Sometimes we get caught up in the dazzle of it. Sometimes we're like Peter where we see what's going on and there's Jesus dressed all in the white and there's Elijah and there's Moses. It's like, here's the stars. Here are heroes of the Old Testament and we want to do something we want to do. And the voice says, no, no. Here's what I want you to do. He says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now my question is, What has Jesus said up until this point? He hasn't said anything in the story here, has he? There's not anything. It doesn't say, the voice doesn't say, listen to him. And then all of a sudden Jesus says, okay, here's what I want to say. So what is going on with the listening? I think what's going on with the listening is it's pointing back to the story that just happened. Because Mark has made the point of saying after six days, he's connecting those two stories. The story where Peter said, you're the Messiah. Jesus said, Messiah will suffer. Peter says, no, 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 no. And Jesus says, yes, that's the way it is. That's how God works, that the Messiah has to suffer. And so the voice God is telling Peter and James and John, he's saying, when Jesus says this is the way it's going to happen, I need you to pay attention. I need you to listen to what he's saying instead of what all these other people are saying. Clearly, they don't get it right yet. The other thing that's going on is kind of this where the voice is telling where God is telling Peter you've got it wrong because Peter is just what said what? The previous story he calls him Messiah. Now he's getting kind of down back to Rabbi. And the voice is saying no this is my son. This is who this is. So let's think about a few kind of implications about things we want to do. Is One is what happens in the story? So there's Elijah, there's Moses, and there's Jesus. He's kind of Elijah and Moses, these heroes of the faith, and Jesus who's coming along, and the voice says, this is my son. When they looked around, they no longer saw any with them except Jesus. Kind of what we see happening is God reminding the disciples there, and in turn reminding us that the only thing that matters is Jesus. That it's all about Jesus, that Jesus is the center, the the light, the glory of us is a reminder of who Jesus is and his glory and his power, that he is the Messiah. But God wants us to remember that our faith, everything we believe, is all about Jesus. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German scholar, he traveled to the United States in the 1930s. And back in, the, in that time, that was the time of the, the rise of Hitler, and, and there was a close ties between the German church and between the German government. Bonhoeffer comes, and he lives in Harlem in the 1930s, and he ends up attending uh, Abyssinian Baptist churches, primarily African-American church. So this, this white German scholar comes, and he lives among these African-Americans, and he sees Christianity and begins to see it in a very different way. And during that time, he writes, and one of the things he talks about is Christless Christianity. And so I think what part Mark is reminding us here, as he's inspired by God to say, is there is no Christianity, there is no faith, there's nothing without Jesus. That in a sense, all those other things have to go away, and our faith revolves around who Jesus is. So sometimes our temptation is to maybe see those other things. We have our favorite teacher. We have our favorite pastor. We have whatever it is and we want to build those things and our faith is around all those things and what the voice in some sense is, no. Don't try and build booths and tents for all those other things but our faith has to be focused on Jesus and on Him alone. So that's kind of the first thing that I think about. The second is That phrase, listen to Him. To listen to what Jesus has to say. That there are times in the midst of life where we can get caught up in all the things going on. And maybe you've experienced it. I know I've had those times where maybe it's a time of reading your Bible. A time of prayer. Maybe it's singing a song at church or Maybe it's taking a walk. Maybe it's at a conference and there's these moments and you kind of get lost and there is that sense of the world being a little bit thinner. But we can get so caught up in all the things going on that we forget to stop and ask, God, what are you saying to me? And this is what it's getting at here is that God is inviting us to listen to Jesus. But the truth is in our noisy world, all the things going on, it's hard sometimes. There's so many other things going on, so much noise going on around us. And so it's an invitation to stop and say, God, what are you saying to me in this moment right now? Because sometimes what we want is we just want the experience. We want the thrill, the joy of it. And there is having been to things like Chick, having been to big conferences, having been to camp. There's something exciting about being around thousands of other people or even hundreds or a small group of people that you really know. I think of when I was in seminary, we took a, a study trip to Israel and it was a, a wonderful trip and one of the days we, we hiked up Mount Sinai and we, we went early in the morning and the idea was to kind of be there on top of the mountain when the sun rose and to have this worship service. And we gathered around, and there were about 20 of us, and we gathered around, and the, the professor who was leading the tour gave a devotional, and then one of the guys had brought his guitar up to the top, and we sang some songs, and it was just this time of wonder of, of being lost and kind of a feeling like, oh, I just want to stay here. I want to be in this moment. But I think what God may be inviting us to do is say, those moments are great. And we need to embrace those, and there's wonder about seeing God a little bit closer. But do we ever stop in the midst of those moments? Do we ever stop when you experience those things and say, God, what are you saying to me in the midst of this? What were you trying to tell me at this time? Do we listen to what God has to say, or do we just rush from experience to experience? Because sometimes that's the temptation. When we have one of those moments, when we come back from that conference, when we had that one song that came on the radio at just the right time, we just like, oh, I just want to get back to that moment. And I want to enjoy that moment. I want to enjoy that feeling. And I think God gives us those moments. God gives us those feelings. God gives us those experiences as a gift because He wants us to experience the joy and the wonder of being in His presence. But I don't think God wants us to be hooked on those experiences and rushing from thing to next event to next song, looking for that feeling again. But instead, God wants us to see Him in the midst of it and maybe even to say, God, what are you saying to me in the midst of this? The other thing, one of the other things I think going on is when it says, listen to Him, is words that God is speaking to the disciples right then because they haven't been doing a very good job of listening. I mean, Jesus says what the the Messiah will. He says back in verse 31, He then began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Okay, we all get that, right? I mean, it, what part of that doesn't make sense? He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. And he's going to three days rise again. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight, but it seems pretty clear what he's saying, right? He's not speaking in metaphor. He's be But the disciples don't seem to get it. And then here again at the end of chapter 9, later on again, seems to be the same thing. He tells them what's supposed to happen, and they're like, I don't really get that. And then if you go down a little bit further into chapter 9 and 10, it happens yet again. And so what's going on? I think part of it is we listen to Jesus, but we do we already have an idea of what Jesus wants to say? Do we already have conceived in our head what the teaching of Jesus is? Do we have an idea of of the way that God works, of the way Jesus is supposed to work. And so we really don't hear what God has to say. Do we come to our Bible and open our Bible and begin reading a passage and say, oh, yeah, I know exactly what this says. I know for me sometimes I wake up or later in the day whenever I'm reading my Bible and I'm looking through and I see something, and especially in familiar parts like the Gospels, Maybe you've had this where you're reading and you think, all right, yeah, I know what happens next. And it's easy to kind of move along through it. But do we take time and say, Jesus, what are you saying to me in this moment? Even more so, do we take time to listen when what Jesus is saying maybe contradicts some of what we've always believed? Or maybe it goes against the way we've been thinking. So we're reading along, and Jesus says, love your enemies. We're thinking, well, Jesus, really, you really don't mean that, though, do you? And the voice from the cloud says, listen to him. When he says, blessed are the poor, we think, well, no, they're not really blessed. Listen to him. When he says... Pray for those who persecute you. When he says, whenever you've done it for the least of these, you've done it for me, we say, Well, I know, but that listen to him. And it's so much of a struggle sometimes because sometimes what Jesus calls us to do, and that's what he said here, is what whoever loses their life for the sake of the gospel, live it. In other words, I have to set aside my preferences, I have to set aside my desires. I have to sometimes give up what I want to do. I sometimes have to suffer a little bit. I sometimes have to go through a little bit of, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, being inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel. I have to go through some challenges and stuff, and I don't like that part of Jesus, and so I want to flip to the good part and say, oh, yes, I've come that you might have life and life to the full. I like that verse. I don't like the verse that says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. But the voice from the cloud is speaking to us and saying, listen to him. When Jesus says it, he means it. And when Jesus says it, he's Lord. He's saying, this is what it looks like to follow me. So are we listening to what Jesus is saying? or do we end up like Peter where when Jesus speaks or when Jesus shows up we just go we start talking and babbling and saying well, I'm going to do something. And I think that might even be another lesson. Sometimes we think of prayer as lots of talking. And part of prayer is listening. And I remember um, hearing someone talking and I think they were talking about Mother Teresa and they were asking her about her prayer life and And they said, uh, so um, when you go to God in prayer, what do you say to him? She said, well, I listen." And the interviewer said, oh, well, what does God say? She says, nothing, he's listening. (laughs) And there's this sense where in prayer, sometimes we feel like we need to be doing something. And it's a curse. I think it's part of being an American, but part of growing up in Western Michigan, there is a value that's built into us that says we have to be doing things a sense of that ethic of working hard and doing stuff and this verse in part reminds us no just sometimes we just need to stop and we need to listen so i would invite you even in this coming week to find that time to stop and to listen to listen to what jesus is saying even as you're reading and say, what is Jesus telling me to do? What is Jesus telling me about who I am? What is Jesus telling me about who he is? And what might the things he is saying here contradict? Are they ways that they're a little bit different than the ways I've thought before? Are they, are they different from the ways that I've been hearing? Are they different from the ways? Am I thinking, as Jesus said earlier to Peter, do I have in mind human concerns or the concerns of god one last thought or implication i think of the story is the story is the fact that we sometimes picture glory in that way and i think that glory is the shining but jesus reminds us that his greatest moment of glory is hanging on a cross but there is no contradiction between those two things Where we see Jesus shining, we think, oh, well, there's that way. There's the Jesus who's shining in glory, and then there's the way of the cross. And this story is reminding us that both of these are the same, that they go together. And in this story is that good news, the good news that we proclaim each and every week, that Jesus died for us and for our salvation. And it's a picture of what is to come. If we were to turn to the book of Revelation in chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's this wonderful picture of the saints and the elders gathered around the throne. And John says, I looked and I saw a lamb as if it were slain. And then it talks about the shining and the glory and this idea of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the song we're going to sing at the end. It talks about the flashes of lightning and the roars of thunder and the picture of but at the center of it is a lamb who was slain. And so there is no contradiction. That glory, that power is not different than the Jesus who died. And so this story is a reminder of that good news, that there is suffering, that there is pain, that there is the way of the cross, but in the end, there is resurrection, there is transformation, there is new life, there is hope. So if that's the word you may need to hear for today, that you may feel like life is a struggle, that life is a challenge, that life is going on. And God is reminding us right here in this passage that death alone, death does not have the final say. That the road of Jesus is a road to the cross, but it doesn't stop at the cross, but it goes beyond to resurrection and to new life and to the glory that we get a glimpse of here in this passage. Not only for Jesus, but for each and every one of us. This is the Jesus loved by the Father. Let us listen to him as he speaks these words of good news. May we hear his voice and may we see him, the lamb who was slain, as the one who brings us into glory. Amen.